Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, I'm Tim Williams. Today my guest is uh, Professor Greg Clark, who has a global reputation, well-deserved, for his pioneering work on cities over decades now, analysing them, thinking about them, trying to create them as an advisor to, oh, more than 50 cities across the globe. Today we talked to him about his thinking about cities after COVID, perhaps the most important discussion topic there could be. Morning, Tim. Excellent. I just look, I'm so grateful to you to get up at this bloody ridiculous hour. I, I know, you know, I know you're experienced. Don't worry. Nice uh, to have a chance to talk to you. Let's, let's start somewhere like, I sent you a list of things, but I'm also quite, I am quite interested in the, um, the catapult uh, experience that you're having, because I think that's an interesting model and yep. ex- extension of what you're up to. So let's just, yep. let's, let's start, let's start big. So, um, Greg, you know, um, we've been through an extraordinary 15, 16 months. Now you, you've been, uh, one of the people, one of the leading people, uh, and I've learned an awful lot from you around how cities operate, uh, over the last, what, 20, 25 years, you've been developing a real expertise and methodologies around cities which we've kind of all learned from here in australia we've we've worked with you on benchmarking various cities and and all that kind of stuff so i can't think of a better person to ask a rather big question which is uh, <clears throat> cities where next um do you think that's uh, covid has raised genuine questions about the the future of the urban is it all cities that are under question how do you see that big picture question so far well, that is a very big picture question, Tim. So let's go for it. Um, I've got three ways of thinking about cities. One is something I call the business of cities, which sort of uses business tools to think about city performance. Another one is what I call the DNA of cities, which is thinking about what makes every and each city unique. And the third one is really place leadership as a kind of a practice that that many of us have been evolving. And if you put together these three different lenses and i think what you can say about the pandemic very obviously is that it's been both an accelerator and a disruptor i think it's accelerated digitization and decarbonization but it's also disrupted mobility practices settlement patterns and and many other things and uh, as a consequence as we lurch towards what i think of is the fifth decade of the century of the city Um, There is a big sort of head scratching exercise going on to answer the question, are we still headed for, you know, roughly eight and a half billion people living in 10,000 cities uh, by 2080 in the way we thought we were, where we thought we'd be just over 80% of the world's population urbanized, or is something else now happening? That's the question. And uh, my, my view is that the the degree of urbanization that the world is on the journey to is not going to change but the shapes and sizes of cities and the way they connect with each other will change and i think the the key sort of two points to observe in this are firstly that for the last decade anyway much of the population growth around the world cities has been in slightly smaller cities and towns, not so much in the largest ones, although the largest ones are still growing, 
The big urban growth has been in smaller cities and towns, particularly ones that are connected to larger ones. And secondly, I think our sort of lens will shift from the individual city to the series of connected places or settlements that uh, enjoy the new geographic freedoms that digitization provides, but also continue to enjoy all of the pull, the, the clustering and the agglomeration effects that having large numbers of, of people and assets and systems uh, in the same place so that they can interact with each other provides. So the pull of the urban is still strong, but digitization enables us to reshape it would be my answer. Um, I feel like saying thank you, Greg Clark. That was a great uh, answer, and that's the end of the program because I think you've nailed most of it. Let's unpick some of it. Let's have a look at some of it, right? So uh, I think uh, what's obviously very important to stress, and you've stressed, is that the, the crisis of the mega city, not crisis, the challenge of the mega cities was happening before COVID, um, in that they weren't, as you say, they weren't necessarily growing quite as fast as they had been. There were some diseconomies of growth, I think, uh, some overheating, all the stuff that we're kind of familiar with. But at the same time, there were some other places that was that were still growing, that were, uh, I think, in your in your argument, quite reasonably well connected with these bigger mega cities. But they were getting more of the action, and there was beginnings to be a discussion even before COVID, I think, about whether some regional cities were able to attract investment uh, and talent. A lot of this has then been accelerated dramatically. Um, but the one, the one thing I think I'm not clear about, and it's not, it's something I want to explore with you, is the economics of cities in, in that I think a lot of the paradigm that, and, and you were, I think, I'm not just saying this, but brilliantly helped us understand over the last 15, 20 years, moved in the direction of the ever greater agglomeration. Um, you quite correctly say it was pausing actually. Uh, in some of the big cities, perhaps even going into reverse. Uh, but there was an agglomeration benefit uh, linked, I think, to a number of different uh, activities. One of them is an economic one around the concentration of the knowledge economy. And the other one was our sociology that Richard Florida probably talked about quite a lot at the beginning of the, of the century. Not, not we, we wouldn't all necessarily agree with the terms, but you know, there was a sociology of movement back to the inner city, uh, the, uh, the, the great inversion as people called it so so i suppose my my question is in having a slight new structure morphology to the the next city which might be a little bit more dispersed and a little bit more the connected city rather than the the traditionally agglomerated sort of uh, mono city that we got used to do you, do you think that's as productive a city than uh, that we've got used to well i think uh, tim there's these are all the good questions in my view um, the problem is that every part of the world offers a different example of a combination of two other things that I think determine the answers to your questions. So the, the, the two other variables are these. It's the degree of urbanization that already exists within a continent and, as it were, 
the attachment to the urbanization model. Let's, let's contrast two continents here. If you take North America, which is by most measures something like 80 to 81% urbanized, with a, a high level of adoption of new technologies, uh, but a very mixed economy, then what you get is a kind of low level of appetite to continue the urbanization journey and a very high appetite, as it were, to disperse urbanization through a whole series of, of personal choices. Now, for places in North America that are trading in services and particularly anything that can be delivered on a mobile basis, a high level of distribution of workers is possible without losing agglomeration benefits. But in certain industries, and I would argue it's nearly all of the quaternary industries, innovation, creativity, design, uh, uh, some of the uh, knowledge intensive industries you've described, actually agglomeration rules still apply. And, and I think that what you will see is that you can have agglomeration benefits over a slightly larger geography in, for example, the whole of the Northeast Corridor of the US, the, the Boston to Washington Corridor, 55 million people, 20 big innovation hubs. It's possible to have an economy that looks like that and just live a bit further away than you used to and still enjoy the benefits of the agglomeration. If we compare that with China, where you've got you know, just over 50% um, urbanization and rapid urbanization going on, it's very clear that there's a high level of appetite to still benefit from the physical proximity uh, that, it, that, is, that is brought by that, especially as they go through the growth from you know, uh, manufacturing to advanced manufacturing to services and, and ultimately to innovation. There's a desire to use more traditional urban forms, but to combine them in regional networks. So the, the growth of the Greater Bay Area, the Yangtze River Delta, the Jingjingji region. And so what I think you're, you're sort of seeing here is that in different parts of the world, the industry mix, the degree of technology adoption and the degree of existing urbanization, if you like, the, the, the journey still to be trod to roughly 80% urbanization, this creates a very compelling proposition to continue with the urbanization model uh, in, in a way that's less distributed but more connected. And so I think what you're going to see are, are different forms. Now, I've talked about North America and China. We could begin to talk about how Europe is going to use this to develop much more of a kind of managed metropolis form. I think you're seeing already in the Middle East the emergence of more of a regional network of cities that recognize that perhaps they need to compete a little bit less and complement and connect a little bit more. So I do think, Tim, that agglomeration rules will still apply, but they work over different geographies per industry, depending upon the rates of technology adoption. And so I think we're going to see a very diversified map going forward. If there's one thing I would say will be an effect of the pandemic, it's that cities will look and feel more different from one another in different parts of the world. Now that I think is fascinating and I want to go, I want to develop that a bit more. So there's a kind of underpinning your argument, I think is there's, there's a, a kind of 
um, ac acceptable determinism, which is which is correct, I think, around the, the economic drivers. And at the same time, you did use the word earlier on about leadership, and I guess that is about response and shaping of these economic drivers, which can have different outcomes depending on leadership, really. And I think that the, I, I want to ask you that question in the context of COVID, because you could argue that the that the so-called um, existential threat that people have seen to the cities may appear more of a kind of Western city uh, problem uh, than a, than any Asian city one, where you know uh, if if it's Taiwan or if it's China, they, they they don't appear to have been quite as disrupted for quite as long, and therefore maybe the questions about their model are not quite as deep as the ones we seem to be facing. On although I haven't said that. You know, I, I'm very wary about making overall historic judgments when we're still in the middle of our response to to COVID, and you know, we will see some repossession of the city. Um, you know, as people gaining confidence and as the vaccine returns. But that that thing about how leaderships have responded differently to these big forces and COVID is a big big force. Is there a kind of do you think we'll see when we look back historically that there's a, a fork in the road around between Asian city responses and and as it were, Western city responses? Uh, well, there's 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 a lot to unpack in what you've just said. So let, let me try and walk through it a little bit. I mean, yeah. firstly, we should say that overall, this century of cities story that I've begun to tell you from 1980 to 2080, the world's population growing from roughly 6 billion to roughly 9.5 billion and shifting from 40% urbanised to 80% urbanised, a tripling of the number of people who live in cities. This has given rise to huge expectations, Tim, of what cities can do for us and with us. Cities can, you know, end uh, poverty, they can induce industrial development, they can decarbonize the planet, they can create multicultural cosmopolitan tolerance societies. You know, we, we have very high expectations of what cities can do. But generally speaking, around the world, on aggregate, we equip them so poorly that they are unable to fulfill the promise that we have. So part of the debate for the next six decades, if you like, of this century of the city is whether we're prepared to equip our cities for the tasks and the expectations that we have of them. And you and I could have a very interesting discussion, I think, about you know, why some cities are better equipped than others for the challenges that they face. And if you like, how, how do we ignite the global quest to uh, properly empower cities? So that's one part of the story. But I think then when we get into the pandemic, and now I have been tracking the recovery in 100 cities around the world, what of course we're seeing firstly is multiple waves that are not synchronized with each other. So just as one part of the world comes out of some kind of lockdown, another part of the world goes back in. Three months ago, I was reporting on a, you know amazing progress in in Singapore, and now of course they're back in a, in a semi lockdown, and we've we've seen similar things in parts of Canada. But overall, Tim, um, I think the, the the key thing I'd like to say is that I think there has been a hysterical media reaction to uh, the pandemic, particularly in the West, and particularly actually in North America. I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine that you know, a continent that has 4% of the world's population is so dominant in the slightly hysterical debate about the future of cities. And I, I say to people almost every day, 
4% of the world's population live in North America, 6% live in Europe. Let's talk about what's happening for the cities where the 90% of people are. And uh, all of this monologue that we've had about the death of the city, the reversal of urbanization, the decline of the city, I think is just palpably wrong. And it's, it's the classic mistake of looking at uh, one phase of a process and assuming it's permanent. If you look at cities when they're in lockdown, uh, it's easy to prophesy the death of the city. But if you imagine what the process of recovery, revival, and then reset are going to be, you can start to think much more imaginatively. So it has been a bit disappointing that the, the quality of the media debate has been so poor. And now, when I look at the data, for example, on Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong, Beijing, just to take three obvious cities, uh, levels of patronage of public transport, return to the office, and these sorts of measures that people are using are back to kind of 80%, 90% of where they were pre-pandemic. And most cities that come out of lockdown uh, and are out of lockdown for a reasonably long period of time, three to four months, we begin to see a return to something that looks like between 80 and 90% of what we had before. Now, we need to remember in all of that, that this is happening in the context of more or less a global shutdown on transnational tourism. And it's also coming in the context of global corporates not really having sorted out yet their policies about the return to work. So uh, the problem, I think, with the conversation that we've been having is that um, we're focused on the small decisions that a number of people will make uh, who live in, you know, who live uh, in, in, in homes where they can do digitized jobs. And we're not focusing on the mass experience of large numbers of people who still need, as it were, a fully functioning city that provides the amenities and services of everyday life. So um, the, the data, I think, reveals that the post-pandemic city will be, you know, something like 80% similar to the pre-pandemic city, and then there'll be some different adjustments per region of the world, depending upon their appetites and their infrastructures. So strangely for me, Greg, I was very reluctant to interrupt you in that flow, you know, because <clears throat> I agree with all that. And I think the, the sheer provincialism of the, of the city's discussion, because of what you've described, uh, where 4% of the planet has effectively been driving a lot of the, the kind of media agenda. I think the second thing, though, that I hadn't expected quite the desire among some people to pile in on the crisis facing the city, as it were, the, the, the kind of anti-urban um, kind of, and I don't mean sneering suburbanism, I don't, I don't sneer at it living in, in Australia, I just mean the anti-urbanism as though it, it doesn't benefit all of us to see a successful city. I'm going to give you an example in, in where I live now, in, in New South Wales, in, in Sydney. And you know this, Greg, having studied Sydney very much and, and having helped us develop strategies. The, the, the fact that it's um, 71, 70, was it 63% of the population of the state in one city, but 71% of the GDP, as though there's no link between the, that, the one on the left and the fact on the right, you know, i.e. there is a Sydney premium and somebody needs to explain to me when they pile in and say, oh, you know, this is great. Let's let's demolish the, this, the city and let's move out to the country. Where does the wealth get created? No, this is not to say, and, you, and you've never said this, that these places were perfect before, you know, 
And some of the anti-city critique was, was rational and was based on, on the fact that perhaps we had a rather simplistic model in play and didn't think enough about who would benefit from the city. The city for all discussion was a, is a very important discussion. But the idea that we can live, flourish, and actually be egalitarian without this huge driver strikes me as nonsense. The issue is confidence now, I think. And you alluded a bit, there's a couple of things. Let's go back to governance. But let's also let's go back to city leadership because you've written, I think, really excellently on the kind of the city team that there needs to be. And it strikes me that the this is more important than ever now in terms of recovery strategies, the kind of public-private community alliance around the city is really more important than ever. The, on the on the market front, on the private sector front, there's there's lots of things going on. Individual firms, it's like a classic, somebody I hope will tell me what the intellectual economic theory is behind this, but it feels like a version of the tragedy of the commons where individual companies have been thinking inevitably introspectively and then suddenly you turn around and the offices are empty and the cafes, bars and restaurants have closed. That can't be what people intended. And I think the second thing is now, is there enough serious work going on about the downsides of the kind of homeworking episode, you know, the explosion of ill health, that there will be the lack of productivity and all this kind of stuff. The fact that we will be suppressing the careers of young people. Uh, I feel like a regendering of the, of the inequality of the workforce is happening with women at home and all this kind of stuff going on. When the city had been, you know, in, in your words, like the, the great driver of social change and equality. So we throw away that at, at, our, at our peril. So there needs to be a, a less provincial discussion led by the American discussion to a more global discussion about the importance of cities going forward. But what do we do next? I think the, and where I, where are the great examples in your view of people getting this right now, of getting on the front foot to kind of represent the city, reanimate the city, leadership, any examples of, of stuff that you like going on? Well, Tim, there's, there's so much in what you've just said, but so, so let me start back at the beginning and say, I think it's important to have a sober conversation that goes something like this. Um, the human race is uh, on its way to being 10 billion people. Uh, so we have a kind of infinite growth of human population, but we have a finite planet. So the key question is, what's the best way to organize 10 billion people on one planet. Now you do have some choices there. You could have, you know, 5,000 well-organized cities that would be, you know, relatively a compact way to organize those 10 billion people. Or you could organize those 10 billion people into much more distributed settlement patterns. As soon as you start to look at options like that and you do the analysis, you find that the version of human settlement that's gonna produce the best uh, public goods is going to produce the best externalities is the one where you um, bring people together in compact concentrated locations and you service the population efficiently and effectively almost every other model of distributing 10 billion people produces such negative environmental social and economic consequences that it's actually unthinkable but my worry is that we kind of sleepwalk into a conversation which involves a kind of collective amnesia where people forget these basic facts that you know cities are good for us now then i think what you have to say is 
Yes, with cities are good for us, but the problem is we've had both examples of bad urbanization and good urbanization. So our task in a sense is not to just celebrate cities, but also to fix them. And once you've agreed that you need to fix cities and that we want good urbanization, which is connected, facilitated, well-managed, it's led uh, and everything else, then you get into immediately, okay, how do we do that? How do we get good urbanization? And I think, and, and you've alluded to this, that leadership is the kind of key variable here. Now, many people like to talk about, you know, the, the problems of national governments or central governments or states or provincial or regional governments not being willing to equip cities with the hard competencies, the hard powers that they need, the financing capability, the infrastructure and everything else. And I think that's a very legitimate discussion. But I don't think there makes any sense to kind of wait for the day when suddenly national governments give to cities the powers they should have. What cities have to do is to self-organize, as it were, to prove their competence. So I, I come from the view that cities can orchestrate their soft power. And if they orchestrate their soft power effectively, they can acquire more hard power. Well, I think that's what you see in, in a city like Manchester in the UK where there's been a big coalition of you know, nine municipal governments working with business universities and others to create a soft power agenda that has enabled them then to crystallize reforms, which have given them more money, better access to infrastructure and so much more. And, and you see similar things, I think, emerging now in various parts of Latin America, particularly in, in Colombia. Uh, you see organizations like Pro Bogota in Bogota. You see the, the citizens-led movements in Medellin. You see the Chinese government beginning to do this with the big regions I was talking about earlier, the, the Greater Bay Area, the Yangtze River Delta, the Jingjingji region. I think you're beginning to see this conversation happening in ASEAN as, uh, as governments like the Indonesian government and the Thai government and the Philippines government begin to think about what kind of system of cities they need and what kind of, what kind of leadership that system would require. And we do begin to see, I think, Tim, effective civic leadership where civic-minded politicians and civic-minded business and institutional leaders are able to come together to build alliances, to promote reforms, but even more importantly, to achieve a kind of governance, a collaborative governance that enables them to manage better in order to produce cities that are more efficient. And I think that for the next couple of decades, there will be a kind of big cycle of innovation in place leadership and place governance, uh, partly because what the pandemic has done is to induce a kind of new wave of innovation in thinking about you know, the agility of our cities, um, turning exhibition centers into field hospitals, um, rapidly you know, creating new public spaces where roads used to be, uh, re-engineering the school day so that children are traveling at different times, um, a big boost, obviously, in active travel and things like that. In other words, at the very local level, one of the things the pandemic has done is to induce a kind of new collaborative innovation. 
And I see a lot of potential in this to kind of forge a new cycle of collaborative governance in our city. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that we understand now that it's not just about the formal process of reform, it's actually about cities acquiring some of the soft power that comes from effective collaboration. See, I completely agree with this. I also think you can see, it's interesting, you know this very well, we've seen an, a bit of this happening in Western Sydney where we've had the city deal uh, with the uh, eight councils collaborating with the state government and the federal government and that, that's been very powerful in attracting new investment and, and just providing a kind of governance framework we've never had before. What I was going to say was, the um, do you think it's likely, I think you're right that actually uh, there's a really interesting phrase out there at the moment that they'll in the future cities won't be doing conventional inward investment, they'll be, they'll be, they'll be recruiting people, um, you know, in the sense of the, the quality of what they offer. Will be this will be the cell, and and I I, I do think that, but I, I think you're right in saying that the quality of the governance and the collaboration and the partnerships to bring people together uh, to forward the city strikes me as also a cell that we need that will you know, and some cities will differentiate themselves from others because of that. I want to talk a bit about differentiation, and as we go to the last bit of the uh, the discussion, the last ten minutes maybe, I can we talk about? Um, I want to talk a bit about your notion of a post-pandemic place that you've been developing with the uh, your connected places catapult i want to talk about what the connected places capital ca catapult is just one thought about australia before we we go there the, partly because of that dominance you you raise so importantly of, of the international discussion about cities the australian exceptionalism within this has got somewhat lost even to australians you know our, ourselves as it, as it were in that you know more people have died in the london borough of hackney than in the whole of australia um, you know, so this has been either by luck or judgment or both, the, the lucky country plus some pretty good governance has resulted in a tremendous result in health terms, really, in, in most of the cities in Australia. Uh, and actually going forward, I'm, I'm quite influenced by, Andres Duaney said something the other week, which I thought was interesting about the 1919 Spanish flu, which is it actually led to people leaving some of the northern cities in the US to go to Florida and to go to you know uh, LA, it wasn't the end of the cities. It was a different geography for the cities, where people felt that that version of a pandemic meant that they should go to a different city. And and I think there's something interesting about Australia. I think will have a great sell, and Australian cities once confidence re restores itself has a great story to tell. I know you know this story very well, having worked in, in Australia. But I think we might have even a bigger story once our confidence returns. A little bit about that, and then I want to come to your uh, catapult uh, initiative. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Again, Tim, there, there's an awful lot in what you've just said, but if I just pick up on, on the Australian end of it, so, you know, uh, I'm a complete optimist about Australia, Australian cities and their future. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things is the big experiment that's going on in, in, in urban and metropolitan governance in Australia. It's not just uh, the Greater Sydney Commission and what that's doing with Western Sydney and the Western Sydney Parkland Authority. It's also the Southeast Queensland uh, Council of Mayors and the Olympic Games. It's also the, the Metropolitan 
platforms that are being created in, in Brisbane and Western Australia. And of course, the continued, I think, uh, effective uh, efforts at, at metropolitan planning and design and, and management that are happening in Melbourne. So in an interesting way, at least those four big Australian cities are doing interesting things on governance. And we're seeing smaller cities like uh, indeed Newcastle and Canberra and others doing fascinating things as well. So I think one of the great things about the Australian sort of urban dialogue and debate is that actually people are being given some space to try some things out that genuinely have some global significance and, and relevance. So I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I think the, the, the challenge for Australian cities is really to demonstrate that the famous lifestyle and livability that they offer is actually available to large numbers of people and that it's simply you know that it won't be the case that a small number enjoy you know the iconic uh, style of life that australian cities offer but large numbers live in suburbs which are short of amenities poor on infrastructure and and lack a sense of place so i think it, it's all about um really uh, building the livability equation much more. A lot of that will be about more people living in city centres. And we haven't really spoken about this, but you know, one of the effects of the pandemic is to, you know, reduce the net aggregate demand for the existing city centre offer, uh, you know, to, to consumers, to commuters and to corporates, and to replace it with a much more compelling set of imperatives around city centres becoming great places to live places of, of unusual experience where, you know, entertainment and creativity and art and culture and sport and leisure can combine with health and education and other things. So, you know, a, a new kind of experience offer from the city centre. And thirdly, of course, the, uh, the role of, of, of innovation industries as the new generators of jobs that, that actually much more frequently now need a city center location. So, so I think that we should be optimistic that Australian cities are going to uh, are going to do well here. There will be, I think, a reputational dividend from having had low infection rates and having controlled these things well. And generally, I think you'll, you'll see a bit of a, a benefit from that, other things being equal. Um, and I think that Australia is on an accelerated path of, of innovation around city leadership and, and place management. So I'm optimistic. So on that subject, I really like all that. I think the, so we're agreeing, I think there's going to be a reinvention of the, uh, I, I've been told not to call it a CBD, I'm not sure, but the uh, city centres will see a churn. Uh, there yep. will be, the, the rents have come down. So instead of them being empty, new people will occupy them. Uh, we, and that's going to be great because Melbourne's diverse partly because the rents are half what they are in Sydney. So a place like Sydney will probably get more diverse economic activity and social activity at the heart of the city, more mixed use. I think also there has been a discovery, we haven't had time to talk about this, but of that kind of, uh, uh, there's a great word, nearby hood, uh, where you know uh, uh, more of what you need can be walkable uh, within the sort of, uh, within the 10 minute, 15 minute catchment, as well as maybe continuing some journeys to the CBD. The challenge, as you alluded to in Australian cities, is to ensure the walkable precinct for all as it, as it were, because uh, we haven't been able to achieve that yet. So, so some of what people are want from their nearby hood is not yet available in parts of Sydney, and that's partly to do with mass transit access and all that kind of stuff. So I think I think we completely agree there'll be a kind of 
Uh, do you think the, 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 the analogy people be using of a kind of um, reinvented CBD still as a kind of hub, but, but, but more real, more vivid spokes, as it were, or suburbs that were more mixed use? Um, I, I did a document, Greg, I hope you'll be proud of me. It's, in its title was Superbia, uh, which is around the <laughs> idea of the reinvented suburb as part of this kind of more distributed city. So I, you know, I, I can see that. And I think that your point of a repetitional advantage for Australia is a very important uh, idea to restore confidence about the trajectory of this country and its urban future uh, being amongst the most successful on the planet, I suspect. Um, yeah. I do. I do want to end with with one uh, question to you because I, I I want to understand the model. You're you in addition to all your work as an advisor and as a consultant and this great body of work you built up over your database of a hundred cities and you understand the forces going on and all the benchmarking which I think is uh, everybody learns from and I'm really uh, we're all very impressed by it, Greg. It's really good stuff. You're also you're also chairing something. What you're chairing the Connected Places Catapult. What is that? Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that, but let me just agree with you that if you if there's a kind of a utopian vision that comes out of everything we've been discussing, it is that you could simultaneously give the suburbs more amenities and more sense of place, and at the same time have city centres that are more interesting, more diverse, and more vibrant. And if we could end up with that as the outcome, we'd all be very happy, wouldn't we? The re that, um, that, that reset is within grasp, I think. You see. I, that's right. I think that's right, Tim. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the Connected Places Catapult is an organisation I'm very proud to have become the chair of uh, in, in in May last year. It's a UK national government initiative, but it's an entrepreneurial organisation whose job it is essentially to spur innovation, to accelerate innovation in cities, in transport, and in placemaking. It's an organization that because it benefits from some public money, its job is, as it were, to be a market maker, not so much a market player. And so it provides what we call innovation as a service for cities, for transport and for placemakers. And it does that through things like demonstrator projects, incubators for small businesses, accelerators, working with big cities or big infrastructure providers, to induce a higher level of innovation by crowding in small businesses that have appetite to work with big players, as it were, to use all of the current Vogue language to, to curate a richer ecosystem for urban solutions, transport solutions and placemaking solutions. And the organization has about 350 staff. It's got a, a, a budget of sort of uh, 40 uh, million Australian dollars and it operates as a business, but with a public purpose. So do so you realize as we end, Greg, that one of my roles in life uh, I now discover is that I, I don't want to pitch this too high, but I'm the John the Evangelist figure, you see. I, I basically find good stuff and I tell people about it. So we, I've been telling people about the good stuff that the Catapult has been doing around, particularly around innovation hubs. And I do want to ask you one kind of professional question, and then I want to ask you when you're going to come and uh, talk to us in, in Australia, when's that going to happen? Is, uh, is the, the professional issue, I think, is this. You have some really rich work you've been doing on innovation hubs, districts, uh, precincts in, you know, I guess, in a UK context. But you've also had some thinking recently about what it means in a post-pandemic world, because there is some fear around that the premise of the 
of the of the innovation district was a kind of physical sociability which people see feel a bit you know maybe is not so current now you and i have talked about reasserting some of the virtues of the city and recovering our confidence about it so i'm hoping to hear and i expect to hear that uh, you know with, with what we're looking at is the combination of the virtual and the physical going forward as it were rather than the abolition of the physical but to end how do you see this discussion about innovation districts going forward well um firstly tim i would simply say that you know over the last 10 years i've studied something like 400 innovation places some of them are districts some of them are corridors some of them are triangles and dr tim moonan and i i think have written about 20 different reports uh, on these and we've studied them in north america in latin america across the whole of europe in asean in the middle east and of course we've we've looked at them uh, in australia as well um and th the point is simply this tim that when uh, a sector is one uh, driven by uh, new technologies new applications uh, new uh, new platforms and two um, is, is new and is forming for the same time um, there are great advantages to be occurred from some kind of physical clustering or co-location um, the ability to as it were break down walls between institutions like universities and research institutes and others, large companies with R&D functions, and to break down those walls in such a way that small businesses and entrepreneurs and others can be part of the creative process of translating research or technology breakthrough into commercialization. All of those things benefit from proximity and they're underpinned by great placemaking. And that's because it requires collaboration, it requires the exchange of tacit knowledge and ideas, it requires people to, to try things and to experiment in multiple ways. So the idea that in cities, we have these special locations where, as it were, experimentation is encouraged, where there's a crowding in effect that brings, as it were, capital to the table in larger amounts, brings visibility to the efforts that are going on, and that creates confidence in the labor market, and it creates, as it were, a narrative that makes sense in terms of the future economy. Um, all of those things are aided by having uh, uh, well-organized places that are designed to do this. You know, if you want to go shopping, you go to a shopping center. If you want to be a lawyer, you go to an office district. If you want to do innovation, you need to spend some of your time in a place that's designed to support innovation. Uh, otherwise, you're, you, you have a disadvantage. Now, as you said very correctly, there's, you know, there's a distortion going on in the, the public discourse that says somehow that the physical city and the virtual or the digital city are somehow opposites or alternatives. In fact, this is you know, completely untrue. And I think we've known this for many, many years that the, the, the physical creates a demand for the digital and the digital can be used in such a way to reinforce the physical so once again and i, I tried to say this in a in a speech i gave uh, to the uh, committee for sydney about a year ago that i think we're headed to a kind of blended city 
where physical and, and digital are constantly interacting and reinforcing each other. This blended city has virtual geographies as well as physical geographies, and it allows people to participate in these innovation ecosystems without necessarily being physically present some of the time. But ultimately, I think that the pull is going to be towards both more intense face-to-face -face physical interactions, as well as much larger communities of participation coming from digital. Now, this should be a good thing in terms of the distribution of, of, of innovation assets uh, around the world, and in terms of many more cities becoming leaders in that kind of quaternary economy of creative and innovative sectors. So um, I, again, I, I'm optimistic that the net effects of the pandemic will be to increase, as it were, the depth and the richness of innovation, not by replacing places with a kind of digital sphere or domain, but by the combination of the two that will allow places to host, as it were, more innovation activity as a consequence of digitization. I hope that makes sense, Tim. I make perfect sense. I, I was going to say to you, Greg, um, that how unsurprised am I and I hope, I hope how unsurprised everybody listening will be to how in combination that was both inspirational and articulate, but then I expected nothing less. Uh, and that going forward, as we need to, in our various leadership groups, take our cities forward, we will be greatly equipped by the thinking and the resources that you've been putting out there for a while, Greg, and we learn from all the time. Uh, and after knowing you now, I think for 23 years or something, I still find I learn new things every time we talk. Um, and Greg, let's do it again. Let's do it again, Tim. Thanks very much. Pleasure to see you. No problem. See you soon. You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.